Well, sometimes you want to get the person the right gift, but you know you draw a blank at times and you don't really know what you're going to get them. And so, so if you have a baby shower coming up, here's an idea. It's called the Baby Wit Diamond Pacifier, 16 karat gold with diamond studs for a meager $17,000. You don't want to drop that nookie. Uh, don't know what to do for your little pooch that you love? Just to give them a midweek treat? Try out the Amor Dog Collar, 52 carats with 1,600 handset diamonds and crocodile leather for a modest $3.2 million. Maybe a knit sweater would be a better way to go on that one. Um, if you have a daughter that loves Barbies and sports, try out the FAO Schwartz Bonzini Baby Foot Barbie Foosball Table for $1 short of $25,000. Foosball doesn't come cheap these days if you want a good hot pink table. Uh, if friends of yours are tired of their iPhone, you could surprise them with a Ferrari Ascent TI cell phone from Virtu. Uh, it is covered with the same hand-stitched leather that the interior of Ferraris are, are made from at a sensible $9,650. And I hope the reception is good on that phone to, be, to make it worth it. Who knows? This is not the tax bracket that we live in, Amen. I don't live in that tax bracket. What makes a gift extravagant? Is it price tag? Is it rarity? Is it age? Is it status? Some unique gifts are so extravagant, you, you just can't put a price tag on them. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus giving an extravagant gift, but perhaps not the one that you expect. So stay tuned. It's extravagant. It begins in Jewish culture at a special wedding event. This is the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a hermit, all right, that lived in a hovel up in the hills or the mountains. Uh, He wasn't some strange cult leader that withdrew uh, from the world with his guns, uh, all right? Jesus was part of culture. He grew up in a small town. He learned how to work hard. He wore normal Palestinian clothes, he, he had customs and traditions fitting to the culture that he lived in and had family and friends. He was, in part, a normal Jewish man who knew how to enjoy life. If he was on earth today, it would be reasonable that he would be from a town a lot like Mannheim. Um, he would probably wear jeans and a t-shirt. He would look normal. He would blend in. Uh, Jesus is a lot of things But disconnected from culture, he is not. On the third day after Jesus called Nathanael, Jesus and his disciples, they accepted this invitation to go to a wedding in Cana. And it's likely that Andrew, Philip, uh, Peter, Nathanael, James, and John were all there with him. Mary was there as well. But it's odd that Joseph was not mentioned. Now, there are some scholars that say by this time, Joseph had already passed away. He had already died. And so it is reasonable to think that Jesus lived many years without his earthly dad, uh, which is interesting. And so they're all at this wedding celebration. First century Jewish weddings were really cool. I think we all would have enjoyed being part of them. Um, They could last up to a week. Friends and family gathered to honor the bride and the groom and their marriage covenant. New people showed up to this 
festival type of thing uh, and this celebration each day and the groom paid for it all. Good deal, huh? So Jesus was part of this special occasion. Matthew eleven nineteen tells us Jesus came eating and drinking. He never ate or drank too much. He condemned drunkenness. He condemned gluttony. Never irresponsible, always appropriate and moderate, but was certainly not a teetotaler or prohibitionist. He enjoyed food, good food. He enjoyed wine, fine wine. Jesus was not against enjoying what God has made. No doubt, Lancaster County, if you spend any time here at all, you know that there are culinary treasures here. Amen? There's just great food. Whoopie pies. I bought at the game. This isn't even in the notes. I'm just thinking of it. I'm at the game at Mannheim on Friday night, and I got a pretzel. Now, I had had a pretzel before, but the the pretzel, someone probably makes the pretzels here, and I'm going to offend you. But anyway, I I like the really cheap pretzels, the the frozen kind that you get, the soft pretzels. And and this is a little bit different of a kind. And after I'm done with my pretzels, I see up on the board, whoopie pies at the one stand. I'm like, why didn't I get a whoopie pie? I rushed it. Anyway, sometimes that happens when you have to make a decision at the food stand. Anyway. Uh, Lancaster County has good food, and I think Jesus enjoyed the cuisine of his culture. I think he took it in. I think he savored it. I think he knew what taste buds were since he created them, and I think he enjoyed it with his friends and with his family, and in his heart was perfect thanksgiving, perfect gratitude for what God gave him. Jesus was not some bizarre loner that, that was withdrawn from culture. He was part of culture, but he was distinct from it. Always in perfect step with the Holy Spirit. Always doing what his father wanted him to do. He was involved, yet he was always faithful to God. His main objective was God's will, and engaging uh, culture was part of that mission he was sent to do. We have to follow Jesus into culture to be part of it, but distinctly different from it. As we enjoy life, it should always be clear that we enjoy Jesus more. Be in culture, but not of culture. We are not of this world, the Bible tells us. We are different, marked by distinct devotion to Jesus Christ. Sarah Grove sings this great little song. It's called, To the Moon. And um, it's really an indictment on the church for their attitude of withdrawing from the culture and just forming their holy huddle over here. And I'm going to sing it for you. It goes like this. It was there in the bulletin, we're leaving soon. After the bake sale to raise funds for fuel, the rocket is ready and we're going to take our church to the moon. There'll be no one there to tell us we're odd. No one to change our opinions of God. Just lots of rocks in this dusty sod here in our church on the moon. Get this last verse. We know our liberties. We know our rights. We know how to fight a very good fight. Just grab that last bag there and turn out the light. We're taking our church to the moon. We're taking our church to the moon. We'll be leaving soon. Should we avoid culture altogether? Should we blend in with culture? Or should we change culture with the gospel? What did Jesus do? Our culture is a mess. Look around you. Look in your community. Look in your own home. Community. 
state, nation, world. Our culture is, in, is, is just a wreck. We celebrate self-indulgence. We worship celebrity. We thrive on entitlement. We chase after fame and fortune like hounds chase a fox. We orient our entire lives around idolatry. So do we as Christians just pack up and head for Waco? Do we head for the hills or for the moon? Or do we as followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus into the mess of culture to engage people where they are so the gospel shines and transforms culture? Friends, God planted us here. We have a mission here. He gave us friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and he's calling you and he's calling me to live radically joyful lives in culture so the culture encounters the Jesus behind the joy. A considerable problem arose at the wedding. This presents the opportunity of Jesus. He gets an opportunity. The people were enjoying the party and the wine ran out. Um, wine was such a huge part of Middle Eastern culture and throughout Jewish history, wine was signified, um, signified joy and prosperity. It was a blessing from God. Remember his uh, last supper with his disciples? After he thanked God for the wine, he said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wine was an important part of Jewish culture and even more importantly, it was a visual of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Well, the groom ran out of wine. It would have been embarrassing for him. And I read that he actually could have been sued by the bride's family for running out of wine. This was a serious situation. He, he might have been uptight, uh, to say the least. Not a good situation. Mary knows this. And she comes to Jesus in verse 3, and she says, they have no wine. Now, I think Mary was in tune with what was going on in the wedding. I think she was sensitive at this moment and compassionate. And um, I think she also was expecting Jesus to do a miracle because she tells him this. After all, Mary would have not so easily forgotten what was said about her son by the angel many years before. Jesus responded in verse 4 kind of in an odd way, woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You say, woman. That kind of sounds like a little odd to, uh, to our English ears. It kind of sounds rude. But he wasn't being rude. The term woman was abrupt and formal like saying ma'am. But was chosen by Jesus to communicate something specific. If he would have said, yes, mother, I know. And I'll do exactly as you say. That would have totally missed his point. That wouldn't have captured what he was trying to communicate. By saying it this way, Jesus showed distance from his mother, showing that his allegiance was to God, not to her, not to any other earthly relationship. God's timing was his concern. His heavenly sonship trumped his earthly sonship. I agree with RVG Tasker that Jesus was essentially saying, your concern and mine are not the same. All things acquiesced to his main objective, redeem God's chosen people for the glory of God. That was on his mission. That's what he was focused on, and that's what he did. 
When he said in verse 4, my hour has not yet come, he meant it wasn't time for the fullness of his identity to be unveiled, nor was it time for him to go to the cross. The false accusations would come. The false charges would come in time. The suffering would come in time. The cross would come in time, but not yet. Jesus could not be harmed, could not be killed prior to the time God chose him to go to the cross. My college roommate's brother was a a Marine who courageously gave his life in the Iraq War. Um, Jesse Strong died in January 26, on January 26 of 2005, when his Humvee was attacked by a rocket-propelled grenade. The last time that my roommate Matt saw his brother was at our wedding. Celebration. In August of 2004, this is an amazing story, and if my memory is clear... While we were hanging out at my parents' house, talking about his deployment and uh, service in the Marines, rather, uh, Jesse said, I'm bulletproof until God calls me home. He had confidence in God's plan for him. Christ would be crucified, Christ would go to the cross. The divine counsel of God determined it, but not at this moment. It wasn't for Mary to determine when Jesus would manifest his glory. And that's what Jesus addresses as he addresses her. Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Doesn't it seem odd that Mary is starting to instruct the servants? And I think there are several possibilities here. It's possible that the bride and groom knew Mary and Jesus and their family. And so she was concerned and she wanted to help out. And so she's kicking in here. Or it could be that Mary had some specific role to play at the wedding feast and shows she was rightly concerned. Or maybe Mary was confident in her son's ability to do something spectacular that would surprise everybody. Whatever the reason was, Mary submitted to the authority of her son, Jesus, and instructed the servants to follow his lead, and that's exactly what they did. They did what he said. The water jars are significant. You can't miss that. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And we know from this that Jews, and from history, that Jews made washing a religious ceremony. And uh, we see this in Mark 7, 1 through 4. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So you can see how important washing was. We're washing everything. We're just going to wash, wash, wash. Hence the stone water jars. Now here was the opportunity of Jesus to begin to more fully reveal his power and his majesty and his glory and his authority. He begins to point people beyond his commonness onto his divinity, onto the supernatural power that he has, but not in a public way, in a more subtle way, in a more private way, with only a few, namely his disciples and the servants who saw, possibly Mary. God appointed this moment as the inaugural display of his son's glory. And I believe that God appoints moments in our lives 
for the display of the glory of Jesus in us. I think there are God-appointed moments that come to us where we are to shine. Really shine and reflect and point to the glory of Jesus Christ. So live a watchful life. Be ready. Jesus was always ready. He seized the day. He seized the opportunity. He was ready to act. That brings us to the authority of Jesus. When serving a lot of people at a banquet, I know some of you have done things like this where you've had a lot of people that you've needed to serve. There are a lot of details. That's hard work. And you have to think through the details and make sure you've got food for everybody and drink for everybody. And not my particular gift, but some of you have it. And so food preparation and distribution for a lot of people can be difficult. Ultimately, the groom is responsible here. And uh, if you look at verses 9 and 10, the groom is approached about serving the best wine last. And so the groom is ultimately in charge, but there is also this master of the feast uh, or head servant in charge of managing the feast. So the groom was responsible for the miscalculation, but you have a whole wait staff that is like, whoa, we're out of wine. This is not a good thing. So they listened to Jesus for probably a multitude of reasons and did as he told them. Jesus, the type of guy he was, was just to earn respect from people. He had that demeanor about him. And based on other scriptures, we know he exuded authority more than the scribes did. He was the type of leader that could enter any situation at any time and know exactly what to do. He could take charge. He could lead people to this awesome conclusion. He never was at a loss for leadership. He told the servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water. And that's what they did. It was no magic. It was no illusion. Um, it was real. Why? Three things to consider why this wasn't an illusion. Why he wasn't mixing up some potion that just made it look like wine. This is why Jesus is God right here. One, the jars were empty. We know from the language that it was empty and the servants filled them with water. They filled up the empty space with water. They were not adding water to some existing liquid or sediment in the bottom that was done. It was an empty jar used for water, so there was no sediment, just water in that jar. Secondly, the jars were filled to the brim, so there's no room to mix in anything else to try to make some weird illusion for the people. And thirdly, if the illusion, if it was an illusion, it would be impossible to make this mixed concoction of chemicals that look red and look like wine taste like wine, especially fine wine. Just impossible to do. So the only logical explanation that fits the eyewitness testimony is Jesus actually turned water into wine. That is the power that he has. He told them to draw some out and to take it to the master of the feast. Now, if you go through the mind of the servant, perhaps they were asking, why are we being asked to take water when there's a wine shortage? This doesn't, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. But they followed his instructions as they were told. God doesn't always make sense to us. Um, he works things that we can't always see. Did the disciples and servants know exactly what was happening at that moment? I don't think. Um, but God was working to accomplish something great. Our lives don't always make sense. Sometimes the pieces just don't seem to fit together. We're, we're at a loss for words. But similar to the wine, God is revealing to us amidst this 
that things about himself, right in the middle of the mess, he's showing us something profound about his character. Why are we playing with water, Jesus? There's a wine shortage. This doesn't... But what was Jesus doing? He was purposefully putting his glory on display. It's not about the wine. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. The wine pointed to his power and authority to the purification that he makes for sin on the cross. All the details of your life, take hope in this church, all the details of your life are working together. There's a purpose. There's even a purpose in pain and struggle and heartache. There is a purpose. It's God's good purpose. It all works together. And that that truth is more valuable to us than relief from the mess. Rather than getting everything just perfect in our lives, there's something better. God is revealing his glory to us, which is better than relief from the mess. So in the middle of the mess, we can take hope. I have Jesus. I have Jesus. I have his grace. There's something more valuable the glory of Christ in your highest joy in his glory. Without the scarcity of wine, where would the sign be? What happened next could transform the way that you look at everything, the way that you look at theology, the way that you look at life, the way that you look at your family. So uh, please stay tuned. The excellence of Jesus, the excellence of Jesus. The servants took the wine to the master of the feast. He didn't know where they came from. Servants knew, Jesus knew, disciples knew. The master of the feast He puts the wine to his lips. He takes a sip. Whoa. That's good wine. That's really good wine. Wait a second. What in the world? Why is it rolling out now at the end of the feast? Why wasn't this at the beginning? Jesus transformed H2O into the complex molecular structure of fine, delicious wine. No magic, no illusion, just supernatural adjustment of atoms from plain to extraordinary. The choice wine made such an impression with the master of the feast that he called the groom over and he said, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the best wine until now, the good wine until now. Now, why did he say that? Well, the habit would have been you serve people the best wine first, and then after a little while, you know, the senses become a little dulled, and, uh, and the acuteness of tastes and the ability to distinguish the quality is not so much there, and so cheaper wine becomes adequate and saves a lot of money. And so John recounts in verse 10 that people had drunk freely, which can also mean they were intoxicated. Now, I'll I'll just lay it out there. When I'm reading, I'm thinking, okay, everyone's viewing it like drank freely, but in the other uses of of this word in the scripture, it means intoxicated. So were they drunk or were they not drunk? And and I'm not sure, but I, I think some were at this point. Uh, the reason being of the use of the word in the other context. Now, that would have been odd too, though, because Jews would have been very spiritual people interested in the Old Testament and would have understood Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So maybe they were pious Jews understanding the law, just, just weren't. But I think it's reasonable to believe that they were. 
They probably had a little bit too much, which was not good. It was sinful for a Jew and sinful for everyone else. Isaiah 5.22 says, woe to those. This verse never hit me before, but this is so interesting in our party culture, especially with college students. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Is that not just like, whoa, didn't know that was there. Woe to you if you abuse alcohol. So why did Jesus create more wine? Beyond displaying divine power, I believe Jesus was displaying the essence of his divine extravagance. He revealed the plentiful and lavish grace of God. The master of the feast compared this wine to all other wine, and it was better. It was more full-bodied. It was more flavorful. Jesus made excellent wine. When Jesus does something, he does it with excellence. He doesn't let people down. He exceeds expectations with luxurious grace. Now, if you do the math today, an inexpensive bottle of wine is around $8 today for 25.4 ounces. So if you do the math and make the, the computation, it's a gift to this couple of about $4,500 to $7,500 at the wedding feast. That's for cheap wine. All right? That's an extravagant gift for cheap wine. Finer wine comes at a higher cost. Now, you could pay thousands of dollars for a, a, a bottle of wine, all right? But a good, like, let's celebrate this occasion type of wine, $80, uh, gets you a special occasion bottle of wine. By today's standard, Jesus would have gifted the couple between $45,000 and $75,000 of fine wine. But remember, his wine was supernatural. You can't put a price on that. You just can't. Jesus is extravagant, most excellent, superior in every way. Jesus didn't just make wine. He made exquisite wine. Now, he would be no less God if he turned the water into disgustingly cheap wine. It still would be no different. He's still doing something absolutely fascinating and amazing. But he went the abundant route. He just went over and above a lavish display of his superlative character. A lot goes into producing a fine wine. I don't know a whole lot about vineyards and all of that, but as I understand the fertility of the soil, the region of the grape origin, the process of vineyard growth and cultivation, the suitability of the climate... Uh, the time of harvesting the grapes, all of these things contribute to the production of a really good wine. What was the origin of this wine? Jesus. Jesus. No harvesting of luscious grapes. No fermentation process. No soil from the finest regions of the world. Just the command of Jesus and water becomes fine wine. That's extravagant grace. Abundant gifts, I want you to get this because I want it in my life. Abundant gifts and tastes and experiences come from the hand of an abundant God. The wine was excellent because Jesus is excellent. He exceeds the dim pleasures of the world. What's it going to take for us to realize that Jesus is more splendid and excellent than any earthly pleasure? Isn't it interesting that David said in verse Uh, In Psalm 4, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Our God is abundantly satisfying. He gives us more than fine wine. He gives us extravagant grace. This is the point that I believe can change your life forever. 
the uh, momentary, low-grade pleasures of the world do not compare to indulging in the unending superior joy of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 ties it all together. The glory of Jesus. Isn't it interesting what John chooses to focus on in this wedding? You know how weddings are. It's all about the bride and groom. It's their day. It's their special day. But we know very little about the bride and groom. They are not the focus. No dress, no cummerbunds, no wedding favors. Where does Jesus, or where does John rather put the spotlight? He puts it on the glory of Jesus. The Bible records 35 miracles of Jesus. And then if you look at John 21, 25, he probably did a lot more. We just don't know what they were. This was the first. Now, a sign or a signal is used to point to something. It's used to communicate. So a flare shot in the air is not intended to, oh, look at the beautiful colors. It's actually used to communicate something from the hand of the one who shot it. And so we have this sign that's communicating something. When Jesus turned water into wine at this wedding in Cana, when he gave this amazingly generous gift to the bride and groom, he pointed to something. And verse 11 tells us the sign was meant to point beyond the miraculous to the glory of Jesus. What glory was Jesus manifesting in his wine? Four four thoughts. The wine manifested the sovereign reign and command of Jesus over every atom and molecule in the universe. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So his word held those two hydrogen atoms and the one oxygen atom in those stone jars, held them together. And by his word, those atoms obeyed his command and changed into completely different atoms and molecular structures. He rules the entire universe. John wrote in Revelation 4.11 that Jesus is worthy of glory because he created all things and by his will they existed and were created. He willed that into existence. Only God does this because he invented everything. The wine manifested the sovereign divinity of Jesus. The sign authenticated that Jesus was God. The wine manifested the sovereign fulfillment of biblical prophecy. In Isaiah 25, 6, it says, just listen to this. It's an amazing text. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's a picture of great blessing from God, and that is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amos described the blessing of, of God's Um, for God's people through the line of David, how Christ will restore fortune for God's people. Amos 9, 13, and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. That's just a delicious scene. Christ fulfills in himself all the promises of fortune and restoration of Israel. He is the fulfillment of that. He is the fortune of Israel. Lastly, the wine manifested the sovereign kindness of Jesus to meet the deepest needs of people with extravagant grace. Jesus goes above and beyond. Sure, the wine was a lavish gift, for the couple, but even more was the lavish gift 
of his revealed glory for those who saw it. You don't need Louis Vuitton. You don't need Tiffany. You don't need Aston Martin or Seaborn Luxury Cruises to live an extravagant life. There is an extravagance that transcends cultural luxuries and it is received by faith. There is a greater glory to experience that is not made with human hands, that does not corrode in time. It doesn't shift with the fashions of the day. You won't read about it in consumer reports. This kind of transcendent extravagance can only be experienced in the person of Christ and received by faith. He is extravagant. After Jesus did the impossible, after he manifested his glory in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. They trusted him. Now, they had already believed in him. They were following, but the belief was only to a certain extent. This built their confidence that he was who he said he was. Signs are meant to trigger faith. Three three challenges to you, and we'll wrap it up. First, believe that this is absolute truth. That's the first thing. Just believe this, all right? This science doesn't make sense. That's the whole point of it. It's not supposed to make sense. He's God and he changes whatever he wants. He doesn't need to use the laws of science, though he does. Science obeys Christ, not the other way around. We have an airtight eyewitness testimony corroborating the historical events. We don't need to physically see something happen for it to be truthful for us. We can take like credible, reliable eyewitness testimony and that means something. It means something in the news. It means something in history. It means something in faith. This historical account was not put here by mistake. It's meant to reveal something to you about Jesus so you believe. Secondly, enjoy life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you savor the New York strip steak, you're like, this is the best steak I've ever had. And you're just, "Mm, oh my goodness, this is good. With your senses going wild, glorify God in the eating of that steak. When you sip your rich, bold wine, sip it in safe moderation but savor it for the glory of God. He gives us good things. He gives us abundant things, and we are to enjoy them. See if you agree with this. Joyful and sensory Christians, sensory Christians who enjoy life to its fullest, but who clearly communicate in their enjoyment that Christ is superior to earthly pleasures are powerful witnesses to the gospel. Do you agree with that? We enjoy life, we're, so, we're getting the best out of it, but we do so in such a way that shows the culture and the world, but I don't enjoy this above Jesus. Jesus gave it, that's why I enjoy it. And if he takes it all away, I'm still awesomely happy because I still have Christ. That's a, that'll preach. That will convert people. That will show people that we are living something that is real. The last challenge I have for you is to be overwhelmed with gratefulness. Stop complaining. And start praising God with a grateful heart. When people talk with you, are you constantly complaining about your life and circumstances? Is that the focus? We have tough days, and we need those friends to say, I'm having an awful day. I feel terrible. We've got to have some of those moments. But is your life categorized by complaining or by praising because of the rich blessings that he's given you? Be grateful people. Be happy, grateful people. 
Help me to be that when I am just a jerk to be with. Are you overwhelmed with the gratefulness and extravagant grace of God? Extravagance is not brand name. It's not style. It's not even well-being. Extravagance is being loved by God through Christ, who is the personification of extravagant grace. Let's pray. God, we need your help because um, we are far too easily pleased. Uh, We go after all kinds of other pleasures and... um, God, that's peculiar because these pleasures pale in comparison to pleasure in you, God. And so um, I just ask that you help us be a radically happy people uh, to enjoy extravagant grace, to know that Jesus was an extravagant, exquisite man. And uh, he gave us so much in himself, in the cross, in the resurrection, and in the promise that he is coming back. Help us to treasure him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.